Section 10 of The Call of the Canyon by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5, Part 2. Getting in the saddle and on the way this morning was an ordeal that made Carly actually sick. Glenn and Flo both saw how it was with her, and they left her to herself. Carly was grateful for this understanding. It seemed to proclaim their respect. She found further matter for satisfaction in the astonishing circumstances that after the first dreadful quarter of an hour in the saddle she began to feel easier, and at the end of several hours of riding she was not suffering any particular pain, though she was weaker. At length the cutover land ended in a forest of straggling pines, through which the road wound southward, and eventually down into a wide, shallow canyon. Through the trees Carly saw a stream of water, open fields of green, log fences and cabins, and blue smoke. She heard the chug of a gasoline engine and the baa-baa of sheep. Glenn waited for her to catch up with him, and he said, Carly, this is one of Hutter's sheep camps. It's not a very pleasant place. You won't care to see the sheep dip, so I'm suggesting you wait here. Nothing doing, Glenn, she interrupted. I'm going to see what there is to see. But, dear, the men, the way they handle sheep, they... Really, it's no sight for you, he floundered. Why not, she inquired, eyeing him. Because, Carly, you know how you hate the... the seamy side of things, and the stench, why, it'll make you sick. Glenn, beyond the level, she said, suppose it does. Wouldn't you think more of me, if I could stand it? Why, yes, he replied, reluctantly smiling at her, I would. But I wanted to spare you. This trip has been hard, I'm sure proud of you. And, Carly, you can overdo it. Spunk is not everything. You simply couldn't stand this. Glenn, how little you know a woman, she exclaimed. Come along and show me your old sheep dip. They rode out of the woods into an open valley that might have been picturesque if it had not been despoiled by the work of man. A log fence ran along the edge of open ground, and a mud dam held back a pool of stagnant water, slimy and green. As Carly rode on, the baa-baa of sheep became so loud that she could scarcely hear Glenn talking. Several log cabins, rough-hewn and gray with age, stood down inside the enclosure, and beyond there were large corrals. From the other side of these corrals came sounds of rough voices of men, a trampling of hoofs, heavy splashes, the beat of an engine, and the incessant bawling of the sheep. At this point the members of Hutter's party dismounted and tied their horses to the top log of the fence. When Carly essayed to get off, Glenn tried to stop her, saying she could see well enough from there. But Carly got down and followed Flo. She heard Hutter call to Glenn, Say, Ryan is short of men. We'll lend a hand for a couple of hours. Presently Carly reached Flo's side, and the first corral that contained sheep. They formed a compact woolly mass, rather white in color, with a tinge of pink. When Flo climbed up on the fence, the flock plunged as one animal, and with a trampling roar, ran to the far side of the corral. Several old rams with wide curling horns faced around, and some of the ewes climbed up on the densely packed mass. Carly rather enjoyed watching them. She surely could not see anything amiss in this sight. The next corral held a like number of sheep, and also several Mexicans, 
who were evidently driving them into a narrow lane that led further down. Carley saw the heads of men above the other corral fences, and there was also a thick yellowish smoke rising from somewhere. Carly, are you game to see the dip? asked Flo, with good nature that yet had a touch of taunt in it. That's my middle name, retorted Carly flippantly. Both Glenn and this girl seemed to be bent upon bringing out Carly's worst side, and they were succeeding. Flo laughed. The ready slang pleased her. She led Carly along that log fence, through a huge open gate, and across a wide pen to another fence, which she scaled. Carly followed her, not particularly over-anxious to look ahead. Some thick odor had begun to reach Carly's delicate nostrils. Flo led down a short lane and climbed another fence and sat astride the top log. Carly hurried along to clamber up to her side, but stood erect with her feet on the second log of the fence. Then a horrible stench struck Carly almost like a blow in the face, and before her confused sight there appeared to be drifting smoke and active men and running sheep all against a background of mud. But at first it was the odor that caused Carly to close her eyes and press her knees hard against the upper log to keep from reeling. Never in her life had such a sickening nausea assailed her. It appeared to attack her whole body. The forerunning qualm of seasickness was nothing to this. Carly gave a gasp, pinched her nose between her fingers so she could not smell, and opened her eyes. Directly beneath her was a small pen open at one end, into which sheep were being driven from the larger corral. The drivers were yelling. The sheep in the rear plunged into those ahead of them, forcing them on. Two men worked in this small pen. One was a brawny giant in undershirt and overalls that appeared filthy. He had a cloth in his hand, and he strolled toward the nearest sheep. Folding the cloth round the neck of the sheep, he dragged it forward with an ease which showed great strength, and threw it into a pit that yawned at the side. Souse went the sheep into a murky, muddy pool, and disappeared, but suddenly its head came up, and then its shoulders, and it began to half-walk and half-swim down what appeared to be a narrow box-like ditch that contained other floundering sheep. Then Carly saw men on each side of this ditch, bending over with poles that had crooks at the end, and their work was to press and pull the sheep along to the end of the ditch, and drive them up a boarded incline into another corral where many other sheep huddled, now a dirty, muddy color, like the liquid in which they had been immersed. Souse, splash, it went sheep after sheep. Occasionally one did not go under. And then a man would press it under with the crook and quickly lift its head. The work went on with precision and speed, in spite of the yells and trampling and bob-bahs and the incessant action that gave an effect of confusion. Carly saw a pipe leading from a huge boiler to the ditch. The dark fluid was running out of it. From a rusty old engine, with a big smokestack, poured the strangling smoke. A man broke open a sack of yellow powder and dumped it into the ditch. Then he poured an acid-like liquid after it. Sulfur and nicotine, yelled Flo up at Carly. The dip's poison. If a sheep opens his mouth, he's usually a goner. But sometimes they save one. Carly wanted to tear herself away from this disgusting spectacle, but it held her by some fascination. She saw Glenn and Hutter fall in line 
with the other men and worked like beavers. These two pacemakers in the small pen kept the sheep coming so fast that every worker below had a task cut out for him. Suddenly Flo squealed and pointed. There, that sheep didn't come up, she cried. Sure, he opened his mouth. Then Carly saw Glenn energetically plunge his hooked pole in and out and around until he had located the submerged sheep. He lifted its head above the dip. The sheep showed no signs of life. Down on his knees dropped Glenn to reach the sheep with strong brown hands and to haul it up on the ground, where it flopped inert. Glenn pummeled it and pressed it and worked on it much as Carly had seen a lifeguard work over a half-drowned man. But the sheep did not respond to Glenn's active administrations. No use, Glenn, yelled Hutter hoarsely. That one's a goner. Carly did not fail to note the state of Glenn's hands and arms and overalls when he returned to the ditch work. Then back and forth Carly's gaze went from one end to the other of that scene, and suddenly it was arrested and held by the huge fellow who handled the sheep so brutally. Every time he dragged one and threw it into the pit, he yelled, Ho, ho! Carly was impelled to look at his face, and she was amazed to meet the rawest and boldest stare from evil eyes that had ever been her misfortune to incite. She felt herself stiffened with a shock that was unfamiliar. This man was scarcely many years older than Glenn, yet he had grizzled hair, a seamed and scarred visage, coarse thick lips, and beetling brows, from under which peered gleaming light eyes. At every turn he flashed them upon Carly's face, her neck, the swell of her bosom. It was instinct that caused her hastily to close her riding coat. She felt as if her flesh had been burned. Like a snake, he fascinated her. The intelligence in his bold gaze made the beastliness of it all the harder to endure, all the stronger to arouse. Come, Carly, let's rustle out of the stinking mess, cried Flo. Indeed, Carly needed Flo's assistance in clambering down out of the choking smoke and horrid odor. Adios, pretty eyes, called the big man from the pen. Well, ejaculated Flo when they got out, I'll bet I'll call Glenn good and hard for letting you go down there. It was my fault, panted Carly. I said I'd stand it. Oh, you're game all right. I didn't mean to dip. That sheep slinger is Hayes Ruff, the toughest hombre on this range. Sure now, wouldn't I like to take a shot at him? I'm going to tell Dad and Glenn. Please don't, returned Carly, appealingly. I sure am. Dad needs hands these days. That's why he's lenient. But Glenn will cowhide rough, and I want to see him do it. In Flo Hunter, then, Carly saw another and different spirit of the West, a violence unrestrained and fierce that showed in the girl's even voice and in the piercing light of her eyes. They went back to the horses, got their lunches from the saddlebags, and, finding comfortable seats in a sunny, protected place, they ate and talked. Carly had to force herself to swallow. It seemed that the horrid odor of dip and sheep had permeated everything. Glenn had known her better than she had known herself, and he had wished to spare her an unnecessary and disgusting experience. Yet so stubborn was Carly that she did not regret going through with it. Carly, I don't mind telling you that you've stuck it out better than any tenderfoot we've ever had here, said Flo. Thank you. That from a western girl is a compliment I'll not soon forget, replied Carly. I sure mean it. We've had rotten weather, 
and to end the little trip at the sheep dip hole why glenn certainly wanted you to stack up against the real thing flo he did not want me to come on the trip and especially here protested carley sure i know but he let you neither glenn nor any other man could prevent me from doing what i wanted to do well if you'll excuse me drawled flo i'll differ with you i reckon glenn kilbourne is not the man you knew before the war no he is not but that does not alter the case carley we're not well acquainted went on flo more carefully feeling her way and i'm not your kind i don't know your eastern ways but i know what the west does to a man the war ruins your friend both his body and mind how sorry mother and i were for glenn for those days when it looked he'd sure go west for good did you know he'd been gassed and that he had five hemorrhages oh i knew his lungs had been weakened by gas but he never told me about having hemorrhages well he sure had them the last one i'll never forget every time he coughed it would fetch the blood i could tell oh it was awful i begged him not to cough he smiled like a ghost smiling and he whispered i'll quit and he did the doctor came from flagstaff and packed him in ice glenn sat propped up all night and never moved a muscle never coughed again and the bleeding stopped after that we put him out on the porch where he could breathe fresh air all the time there's something wonderfully healing in arizona air it's from the dry desert and here it's full of cedar and pine anyway glenn got well and i think the west has cured his mind too of what queried carley in an intense curiosity she could scarcely hide oh god only knows exclaimed flo throwing up her gloved hands i never could understand but i hated what the war did to him Carly leaned back against the log, quite spent. Flo was unwittingly torturing her. Carly wanted passionately to give in to jealousy of this western girl, but she could not do it. Flo Hutter deserved better than that. And Carly's baser nature seemed in conflict with all that was noble in her. The victory did not yet go to either side. This was a bad hour for Carly. Her strength had about played out, and her spirit was at low ebb. Carly, you're all in, declared Flo. You needn't deny it. I'm sure you've made good with me as a tenderfoot who stayed the limit. But there's no sense in killing yourself, nor in me letting you. So I'm going to tell Dad we want to go home. She left Carly there. The word home had struck strangely into Carly's mind and remained there. Suddenly she realized what it was to be homesick. The comfort, the ease, the luxury, the rest, the sweetness the pleasure the cleanliness the gratification to eye and ear to all the senses how these thoughts came to haunt her all of carley's willpower had been needed to sustain her on this trip to keep her from miserably failing she had not failed but contact with the west had affronted disgusted shocked and alienated her in that moment she could not be fair-minded she knew it she did not care Carly gazed around her. Only one of the cabins was in sight from this position. Evidently it was a home for some of these men. On one side, the peaked rough roof had been built out beyond the wall, evidently to serve as a kind of porch. On that wall hung the motliest assortment of things Carly had ever seen. Utensils, sheep and cowhides, saddles, harnesses, leather clothes, 
rope, old sombreros, shovels, stovepipe, and many other articles for which she could find no name. The most striking characteristic manifest in this collection was that of service. How they had been used. They had enabled people to live under primitive conditions. Somehow this fact inhibited Carly's sense of repulsion at this rude and uncouth appearance. Had any of her forefathers ever been pioneers? Carly did not know, but the thought was disturbing. It was thought-provoking. Many times at home, when she was dressing for dinner, she had gazed into the mirror at the graceful lines of her throat and arms, the proud poise of her head, at the alabaster whiteness of her skin, and wonderingly she had asked of her image, Can it be possible that I am a descendant of cavemen? She had never been able to realize it, yet she knew it was true. Perhaps somewhere, not far back along her line, there had been a great-great-grandmother who had lived some kind of primitive life, using such implements and necessaries as hung on this cabin wall, and thereby helped some man to conquer the wilderness, to live in it, and reproduce his kind. Like flashes, Glenn's words came back to Carly, work and children. Some interpretation of his meaning and how it related to this hour held aloof from Carly. If she would ever be big enough to understand it and broad enough to accept it, the time was far distant. Just now, she was sore and sick physically, and therefore certainly not in a receptive state of mind. Yet how could she have keener impressions than these she was receiving? It was all a problem. She grew tired of thinking. But even then, her mind pondered on, a stream of consciousness over which she had no control. This dreary woods was deserted. No birds, no squirrels, no creatures such as fancy anticipated. In another direction, across the canyon, she saw cattle, gaunt, ragged, lumbering, and stolid. And on the moment, the scent of sheep came on the breeze. Time seemed to stand still here, and what Carly wanted most was for the hours and days to fly so that she would be home again. At last Flo returned with the men. One quick glance at Glenn convinced Carly that Flo had not told him about the sheep dipper Hayes Ruff. Carly, you're real sport, declared Glenn, with a rare smile she loved. It's a dreadful mess, and to think you stood it. Why, old Fifth Avenue, if you needed to make another hit with me, you've done it. His warmth amazed and pleased Carly. She could not quite understand why it would have made any difference to him, whether she had stood the ordeal or not. But then every day she seemed to drift a little farther from a real understanding of her lover. His praise gladdened her and fortified her to face the rest of this ride back to Oak Creek. Four hours later, in a twilight so shadowy that no one saw her distress, Carly half slipped and half fell from her horse and managed somehow to mount the steps and enter the bright living room. A cheerful red fire blazed on the hearth. Glenn's hound, Mose, trembled eagerly at sight of her and looked up with humble dark eyes. The white-clothed dinner-table steamed with savory dishes. Flo stood before the blaze, warming her hands. Lee Stanton leaned against the mantel with eyes on her, and every line of his lean, hard face expressed his devotion to her. Hutter was taking his seat at the head of the table. "'Come and get it, y'all,' he called heartily. Mrs. Hutter's face beamed with the spirit of that home. And lastly, Carly saw Glenn waiting for her, 
watching her come, true in this very moment for a stern hope for her and pride in her, and she dragged her weary, spent body toward him and the bright fire. By these signs, or the effect of them, Carley vaguely realized that she was incalculably changing, that this Carly Bunch had become a vastly bigger person in the sight of her friends and, strangely, in her own lesser creature. End of chapter 5, part 2